Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Emily Kalachi about her book, Street Archives and City Life, Popular Intellectuals in Postcolonial Tanzania, published by Duke University Press in 2017. Dr. Kalachi is Associate Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. La- Dr. Kalachi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Esperanza. Um, I wonder if you could get uh, our conversation started just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, well, let's see. I was born in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, or rather I grew up there. And um, um, yeah, I guess I really got interested in African history uh, when I was an undergraduate at college. You know, I, I went to um, Kenyon College in Ohio and I actually started as a music major. I was really interested in, in, in jazz, uh, and I was a drummer. Um, and that was what I planned to major in, uh, but I took an introductory level uh, history class in African history uh, with, with Professor Clifton Crace, and uh, he's now at Emory. Um, but, uh, but the class just really blew my mind. I just thought it was the most interesting thing I had ever studied before. You know, we read the works of Franz Fanon and Ngugi Wathiongo, and I just was so hooked um, that I changed my major, became a history major, and, um, you know, and I took a semester to study abroad in Kenya. Um, so, um, so that's really what, you know, kind of got me really excited about African history. Um, you know, when I was in Kenya, I started to really intensively study Swahili, which is uh, just the most gorgeous language. And I got so interested in that. Uh, and I, I had a, a mentor there in Kenya, a professor named Athman Lali Omar, who's an archaeologist. And, you know, he was just such an incredibly inspiring teacher. Uh, you know, he really kind of encouraged us in, in, our, in our love of the language and, and, and music and, and art. And so, you know, with his kind of encouragement, I really just became, you know, really, really excited and, and passionate about, um, you know, East African history and, and, and particularly the, the history of cities in East Africa, which has a very, very long kind of history in the region. So that was kind of how I got started and interested in African history was kind of through a, a few sort of random kind of you know, choices like taking a, an introductory level class, you know, and, and then getting really hooked further when I was studying abroad in Kenya. And um, so a few years after graduating, I went, I went to get my PhD at Northwestern University and, and it kind of took off from there. Great. Um, and so how uh, did you start work on street archives and city life? Uh, was that part of your uh, PhD work? Is that how, uh, how do you get to, to write this book? Yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it came out of my, my dissertation. Uh, my dissertation was kind of the first version of it. Um, and, you know, it, it took me a while to kind of get to it. So I, I don't think the kind of idea of a street archive was really there in the dissertation. Um, you know, basically, I, I had gone to Tanzania to, um, I was interested in urban migration. So I was trying to kind of understand this contradiction of, um, you know, or tension rather of you have this, you know, really exciting uh, program of African socialism in Tanzania in the 1960s and 70s, you know, that's largely based on the idea of creating a kind of uh, rural, you know, agrarian kind of socialist society. Um, but at the same time, you have massive, you know, urban growth during that time period. Uh, so I wanted to kind of understand the lives of, of the young people that were moving to the city at this time, um, which kind of led me to the archives looking for evidence of, of you know, their lives and perspectives and, and their motivations and you know, what led them to come to the city and, and what their lives were like when they got there. Um, so I went to the archives and basically the National Archives, you know, really hoping to find that thing that I think so many of us historians hope to find, which is, um, you know, the voices of everyday people. You know, um, I think the hope is always to find something that you can read against the grain. You know, you see these kind of, you know, government reports and, um, you know, uh, you know, those kinds of official kinds of sources, you're really always hoping to find the kind of lives of people kind of popping up in unexpected places. Um, but I was really disappointed in the archives. You know, I wasn't really finding that so much. You know, I got a lot of information about official urban policy, you know, particularly the attempts to kind of get people out of the city, you know, to prevent urban growth and to discipline the population, you know, through policing and through slum demolitions and that kind of stuff. Um, but it was really hard to kind of get at the perspectives of people uh, that moved to the city during that time. And that was what I was really interested in. Um, so I was really discouraged. You know, I was, I was wondering if I had to change my dissertation topic. I was thinking it was just not going to be possible to write the kind of project I wanted to write. Um, but then meanwhile, you know, in the process of kind of spending time in Dar es Salaam, you know, all these other little 
bits of information, you know, kind of found their way to me um, as I kind of just, you know, looked around the city where I was spending my time, you know. So so one thing in particular, I remember, you know, there are all these um, uh, basically these cassette tape sellers, these, 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 you know, usually young men who kind of push these carts around the city with all these cassette tapes that are kind of, you know, pirated copies of all different kinds of different sorts of recordings. You know, a lot of them are, for example, you know, religious music or, you know, Bible readings, um, you know, Islamic text, but also lots of popular music, um, you know, from all different kinds of eras of, of Tanzanian music. Um, and I started to find all these cassette tapes that were pirated copies of, of albums from the 70s. Um, so that was interesting to me. I thought, okay, I'm not really finding much about the lives of, of urban dwellers in these official archives. What about the music that they were making and singing? You know, how could that maybe be a way into these questions I have? Um, similarly, you know, there are all these used booksellers across the city. Uh, and I start to kind of collect these books that I would find there, particularly these kind of urban pulp fiction books that are these kind of crime novellas, you know, published and very popular among young people in the 70s. So I started to kind of look more for sources like that, you know, like outside of the kind of archives of urban policy and, and policing and into the more kinds of creative forms of expression in the city at that time. And that's how I kind of came to refocus my, my dissertation on the kind of popular culture of the city in that time period. Um, so, um, so that was all kind of happening as I was doing my dissertation research. Um, I don't think I really had a sense of this as um, a kind of coherent approach until I started to revise it for a book later on. It was kind of, I was kind of making up as I go along, but, um, but eventually I kind of came to see that as the core of the work is, is looking at these alternative kinds of sources as evidence of urban life. Um, I was actually uh, wanted to uh, ask you about that because as I was reading through the book, it it, uh, it sort of it, it made me think precisely of that of kind of that moment when you're starting to find um, pieces when you rec- what you recognize as pieces of a story, but you don't quite know. Um, you're still not sure how to tell it. You know, you're not still sure how to how to use them and how to put them together and how to make sense of them. And um, and it's it's clearly that your book, um, you know, is both both revolutionary but still part of a of a of a of a, of a, a lot of different strands of historiography. Um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the different sort of uh, trends within African history that uh, that informed you as you were trying to make sense of this evidence uh, and also the, the, the ones that you were trying to sort of like speak, uh, not, not just the ones that you were dialoguing with, but also the ones that you were trying to speak against too, if, if I would going to say it that way. Um, uh, in other words, what, what's the historiography that you're, you're uh, working with uh, and that help you make sense of, of, of this of this evidence? Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that question. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I guess there there are several kinds of, of strands that were most interesting to me. You know, I, I think actually some of the the scholarship that was most kind of influential to me um, was actually not so much in history, but in other disciplines like literature and, and anthropology. I got really interested, for example, in um, you know the work of, of Corinne Barber, who studies you know popular literacy and, and literature in, in Nigeria. Uh, particularly, you know, Yoruba texts. Um, and so I got really interested in how you can kind of read texts as active components of social life rather than simply as kind of, you know, evidence of, of, of some kind of, um, you know, empirical reality. So I got really interested in the kind of anthropology of, of, of print culture, if that makes sense. Um, you know, uh, writers like her, like Isabel Hoffmeyer, um, you know, a, a scholar of, of literature um, who writes largely about South Africa. Um, I was very in, in influenced by um, historian Derek Peterson, um, you know, who, who wrote, he wrote a first book that, um, you know, isn't as famous as his later books, but called Creative Writing about basically textuality and writing in, um, in Kenya, particularly in, in, in central Kenya in the colonial period and how, you know, everyday acts of literacy, you know, in, for example, translating the Bible, you know, into Kikuyu or, you know, uh, you know, writing testimony in, in court cases or, you know, writing letters. These kinds of practices of literacy can reveal a lot about the social worlds of people, um, how they attempted to kind of assert control over their lives and, and realities through the use of the written word. Um, so I found that to be a, a really kind of interesting kind of, um, you know, scholarship to kind of engage with and, and build on. Um, similarly, you know, there's been such a kind of um, 
uh, kind of wave of urban scholarship in, in African history as well. I mean, you know, there have been a lot of histories of Dar es Salaam in particular, um, you know, James Brennan and Andrew Vasca um, and Andrew Burton in particular, the kind of three historians who've written a lot about Dar es Salaam, um, you know, in, in recent years. So I had like a lot of work to kind of stand on and kind of be inspired by, you know, as I was trying to write my own history. And in some ways, um, you know, my work wouldn't have been possible without those earlier histories of Dar es Salaam because it kind of, you know, because they had done such great work laying out the kind of um, political history of the city, you know, how the city kind of arose alongside the, the history of, um, you know, uh, both the colonial state and also, you know, the rise of Tanu as the ruling party, um, you know, because they did that kind of work, um, I then could kind of focus more on these aspects of, of, of cultural expression, you know, being able to kind of rely on that history without having to kind of do that research myself. So that was really um, made it a really kind of, um, you know, kind of enabled the project that I wanted to do. Um, in terms of scholarship that I was trying to, to speak against, um, I'm not sure that there really was much of a kind of argument against anything I was making. I guess, I guess in some ways I was trying to sort of open up um, some of the conversations about um, African socialism in Tanzania, which is such an important and inspiring and interesting history. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, the, the, the scholarship on it tends to be pretty divided between, you know, studies of, of the kind of rural experience with, experiments with socialism and the urban experience of people who are kind of fleeing that project. Um, but, I, you know, the, those histories, of course, are, are, are very, very connected because people were so mobile. I mean, everybody in the city of Dar es Salaam or almost everybody in the city had come from one of these rural areas. So I was trying to kind of understand how, you know, experiences of the urban and of the rural were really kind of connected um, in the history of Ujamaa and, and Tanzania, and particularly ideas about political citizenship. So I guess I was trying to sort of, you know, maybe take that in a, in a kind of a different direction. Um, as a matter of fact, I feel that in some ways, uh, what you were very successful at is, is precisely in kind of moving beyond that dichotomy, isn't it? In, in the sense that you were able to create, uh, basically saying that the experiences of these migrants uh, were not... Um, we're not forged in, in in the midst of that. Uh, am I urban or am I rural? But you know, I'm I'm just doing my thing uh, with the res- resources that I have and, uh, and 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 doing the best I can uh, with with you know what what's available to me. Uh, and I, I feel like obviously that just to a large extent comes out of of being in, uh, being informed by by the evidence where where that dichotomy is not necessarily the, the most dominant one. Um, I, I was wondering if uh, we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, sort of the setting, you know, the the, uh, the setting of African socialism um, that Tanu tried to um, um, sort of experiment with. <laughs> um, and and so we can talk a little bit about uh, this is what the story that you tell in chapter one and how these started to affect uh, changes in the way in which, you know, this dichotomy between the rural or the urban uh, was shaped or started to be shaped uh, during this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so it's a it's a it's a complicated question, and there's um, you know I want to signal a, a couple of other scholars that you know have written so compellingly about the history of African socialism, and particularly um, uh, Priya Lal at, at Boston College has written a really wonderful book about the history of, of Ujamaa in Tanzania. So I recommend that for further reading. Um, so in, in terms of the, um, you know, the way it kind of comes up in, in, in the first chapter of my book in the kind of setting, um, I really try to understand in that chapter a kind of shift that I see happening over the course of, of, of the, the socialist period, kind of roughly from 1967 to 1985. Um, so in, in 1967, you have you know, the Arusha Declaration, you know, in which, you know, Julius Nyerere and his, his kind of his Tanu um, you know, comrades, um, you know, make this kind of proclamation of African socialism, laying out this kind of plan uh, for a kind of self-reliant um, nation, um, you know, that can, um, you know, basically kind of uh, build up its economy and, it, and it, its nation with its own resources, you know, without kind of having to be reliant on, you know, Western aid, without having to be reliant on a kind of, um, you know, uh, mode of production kind of imported from the West and kind of being able to sort of assert their kind of political autonomy through that. And the central kind of um, economic plank of that was the idea of villagization, the idea that um, Africans in the rural villages would you know, organize themselves into these collectivized village units, um, you know, to kind of take part in this kind of um, socialist project of uplift. 
Um, and the idea was that this was something that was, you know, part of traditional African society and, you know, uh, and, and people would take it up voluntarily. Um, and while that was true in some cases, in many cases, it wasn't true. The people did not take it up voluntarily. And in fact, lots of people were migrating to the cities or, or simply just going on about life as they had been before. And so, you know, in, in the 70s, there was a shift from this kind of policy of, you know, voluntarily organizing into to these self-reliant villages to a kind of coercive policy of, of trying to force people to move into these villages. Um, and so that, that to me, is, so I think when we talk about African socialism, you know, we have to see something that changes over time, you know, um, that, that kind of, you know, takes a kind of more authoritarian turn in, in the second half of it. Um, and so how this kind of affects the sort of urban aspect of it, I mean, the, the program becomes, it, or rather political rhetoric takes a much more kind of anti-urban turn um, in, in the second kind of part of that time period. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about in, the, in that chapter of my book is how in the early days of, of African socialism, you know, urban modernization was a big part of the project. Um, or, you know, that, that was true from the early days of independence as well. The idea that, um, you know, an independent modern African nation, um, you know, would have, you know, a major developed city, there would be wage labor employment, there would be middle class living, there would be all the kind of trappings of urban modernity um, you know, that, that many people had kind of aspired towards during the colonial period, but had not been able to attain, you know, because of colonial repression, colonial racism, because, you know, urban policies were so much geared towards extracting wealth uh, rather than promoting a kind of, you know, African prosperity. So there were these promises of urban infrastructure, of public housing, of, uh, you know, all these kinds of urban modernization kind of programs. Um, but, you know, towards, you know, the, as this kind of became less tenable, uh, you know, particularly in the face of, of, of massive kind of urban migration and, and, and kind of unplanned, um, you know, uh, urban squatter settlements, and also in the context of real kinds of economic problems, particularly in the 1970s, you know, with, with the oil shocks and other kinds of, you know, the, the kind of collapse of the economy. Um, there was a real kind of um, effort to really kind of ratchet back those promises of urban modernization. Uh, and um, what went along with that was this real kind of vilification of the city as the, the site of all the kind of ills of the country that, you know, it was the urban dwellers, these urban youth were the cause of, of a lack of development. They were the, they were the kind of obstacle to socialism, these young people that were going to the city, um, you know, because of greed or because of materialism, and, uh, rather than doing their duty to the nation and, and going back to the rural areas to, to do farm work. Um, so there's this real kind of anti-urban turn that kind of comes about in the second part of the, the um, you know, particularly in the 1970s. Um, in terms of the 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 sources that you, that you start exploring, that you started to find, like you explained to us. So you start in chapter two uh, by looking at um, sort of like advice uh, literature, if we could, we can call it that way. Uh, mostly produced by, uh, I guess, middle-class women uh, who are trying to warn, inform, and help um, girls uh, or younger, I guess, younger women who are moving into the city uh, to try to uh, still conduct themselves in in, in um, sort of like in a Christian way. Um, and, and so you start pointing out like all the different contradictions that uh, this uh, uh uh, the different contradictions in city life that this uh, uh, this type of literature uh, highlights. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, these particular types of sources? You know, wh- how wh- when when did you encounter them, um, and when did you start uh, realizing uh, piecing together uh, sort of like uh, the setting, you know, in which uh, they were operating and the, the the contradictions that they were pointing to. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so one of the, the texts that I, well, I guess there are two major texts that I, I found really interesting that I kind of organized the chapter around. Um, the first is this little kind of advice book slash novella uh, by a writer called Martha Mandau uh, called Pekayangu Mjini or, or All Alone in the City, uh, which is basically an advice kind of manual for, for young Christian girls who have moved to the city for salaried employment, um, and particularly advice about how to maintain a Christian style of living in this kind of evil, decadent, you know, kind of city full of temptations to stray from the Christian lifestyle, um, you know, as she portrayed it anyway. And the second text that really interested me was this social science 
survey um, produced by these professors at the University of Dar es Salaam and some graduate students there, or I don't know if they're graduate, they're students there, um, where they'd go out into the urban neighborhoods and interview women about their lives. Um, and they would produce them kind of in collaboration with the women, kind of as a kind of self-ethnography of, of life in the city for women. Um, so I found these th- both of these texts really interesting as historical sources, both in terms of what they kind of told me about urban life, but also about these different kinds of ideas about urban living. Um, so the first one, this kind of advice book by Martha Mandau, um, you know, so Martha Mandau was a, was a, you know, she wrote children's books. She wrote this advice book. She had a, a radio program on a Lutheran radio, radio station for many years. Um, so she was something of a public figure, particularly in the kind of Christian community um, in, in Dar es Salaam, but also throughout Tanzania. She was herself from Moshi, which is, um, you know, inland a little bit and uh, near Mount Kilimanjaro. And um, so I started to kind of try to learn about the social context in which, you know, she portrays the city as this, this real kind of site of crisis for young women. And so I wanted to kind of build the social context in which that was the case, um, you know, and, and part of the context for that was, um, you know, Dar es Salaam and, and the coast in general of Tanzania has historically been a predominantly Muslim part of the country. Um, but one of the kind of tensions um, with uh, colonial rule and also then the independence period is that, um, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, so, so missionary education in Tanzania uh, became, um, you know, one of the kind of major paths towards upward mobility, particularly as the economy shifted towards a kind of, um, you know, wage labor economy. Um, so you have, with independence, a lot of the white collar workers in the city were migrants, um, you know, from upcountry who had had this kind of missionary education, who were literate in English, who, you know, could occupy these kinds of positions, you know, in offices and in the kind of, you know, emerging middle class. So this led to some kinds of tensions in the city. You know, you have these older forms of wealth and status that have that are linked to, you know, access to urban property, to kind of, you know, Islamic kind of cultural networks and institutions in the city. Um, there's a long tradition, for example, of female property ownership in Dar es Salaam. Um, you know, people tend to organize their lives uh, or their, their kind of social, their um, family lives, you know, around kind of extended family networks. Um, whereas these new kind of generation of migrants that become a much bigger part of the urban economy, you know, in, in, in the 60s and onward are people who generally live in a kind of nuclear family unit. You know, they live in detached houses. Uh, you know, um, they, they largely are modeling their lives on this kind of, you know, middle class nuclear family ideal. Um, and so there's this real kind of tension in, in, in the urban lifestyles of these, these different kind of communities. Uh, and of course, there are lots that I'm oversimplifying here, but this is one of the kind of tensions that I think comes up in this advice literature. So Martha Mandel's book is kind of writing to, um, you know, the, this kind of imaginary audience of, of young Christian women about how to move to the city, um, but to not get swept up in the kinds of temptations of urban life, to not kind of become part of the, you know, economic networks of, you know, of, 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 of other women to not kind of, you know, go out to the dance halls at night, go out to the cinema, but to kind of maintain a kind of respectable Christian home in preparation for someday, you know, becoming a respectable married woman, you know, either in the city or, or back home in the rural area. So it's really interesting. It was a kind of, you know, urbanism. She's giving advice to young women about how to live in the city, how to become, you know, salaried employees, you know, and how to have a good work ethic and, you know, all that kind of thing. But it's also a very anti-urban text in many ways because it, it has such kind of, um, you know, expresses such fear and such kind of judgment of, of the urban life of the city itself, you know. And so I found that really interesting, uh, the way that might be mapped on in some ways into uh, the actual physical formation of the city, you know, where you have these new neighborhoods being built up, organized again, largely around the nuclear family. You know, you have these hostels for girls that were trying to kind of wall them off from the city. And so that seemed to me like a kind of interesting kind of tension. Um, yeah. And in, with regards to the, I mean, I, I found the the stories of the of, of that second group of, of, of sources that he used in this chapter of this uh, uh, University of Dar es Salaam students, um, quite fascinating, you know, in terms of uh, having this, um, you know, going out and doing this sort of participatory ethnography uh, while at the same time uh, trying to affect some change um, in, in the lives of, of the women that they were um, uh, studying. 
it's um, can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, sort of like the, the the difference between the the kind of uh, change and the kind of urban lifestyle that these uh, students were trying to um, uh, contribute to as as in, in comparison with with what uh, this sort of Christian literature uh, advice literature was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you for that question. Um, I also found that that source really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, one of the ways I kind of contrast these two texts is that while the kind of Christian literature was kind of seeing, you know, the city as a threat to the nuclear family and as a kind of, you know, um, something to be guarded against, you know, these women, um, you know, from the University of Dar es Salaam really saw the kind of, you know, the kind of extended family networks, the female trade networks, the entrepreneurialism of these cities actually a source of radical potential, you know, that these women, you know, I mean, so, so it, it I'll back up for a second here. So, you know, it, it was talking about these working class African neighborhoods um, in Dar es Salaam. And, you know, the, the norm of life in, in those communities was not so much organizing your home life around the nuclear family. Uh, there was a tradition, for example, of women having economic autonomy from their husbands, having their own kind of trading enterprises. Um, divorce was very common and it wasn't, you know, there was, there was no kind of moral judgment of that. It was, it was, you know, part of the cycle of life, you know, like, um, and, you know, there was a political scientist or historian rather, um, Susan Geiger, who observed that, you know, she did this, wrote this book about women who were active in Tanu, you know, the political party that, um, you know, fought colonial regime and, and won independence in Tanzania, you know, women who were from these communities were much more free to political, to, to organize politically because they had free time, they had economic autonomy, you know. Um, so there's this kind of potential in this kind of way of living um, <clears throat> that's very different from the kind of perspective of these Christian writers that are trying to resist that, are trying to make respectable middle-class nuclear families. So these sociologists are going into these urban areas and doing and trying to involve these women in a kind of um, you know, self-study. You know, they, it was part of the literacy program of Tano at that time where they were going out to community centers, to factories, and teaching women how to read, and then also inviting those women to kind of study themselves and to write about their lives and to participate in these social studies. Um, so there was this sense that, you know, you could find in these communities a kind of potential for, you know, a kind of, um, you know, project of feminist, you know, collaboration or women kind of asserting their own kind of agenda and their own kind of urban um, you know, uh, itineraries and, and ideas. Um, I think at the same time, though, a lot of, you know, the, these, these women from the university, you know, were also, I mean, one of them was actually herself a union organizer in one of the factories in Dar es Salaam. So there was a real kind of political engagement there as well. Um, I think at times, though, there was, there was always a kind of, you know, I don't think there was ever an ability to really break down the kind of difference between, you know, these educated women from the university and these women in the neighborhoods because, you know, oftentimes in the survey, what you see is an expression of a real kind of disappointment that women aren't more, you know, politically motivated. They're not participating in the kinds of projects that would, you know, um, yeah, they, they were kind of going about their lives and, and not always um, having the same kind of aspirations that these sociologists had for them. So that tension, I think, is part of it as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think also it's interesting um, that, as you know, as you read through the book in this chapter, and, and, and we will probably hear about the following chapters, there's always a really interesting relationship um, between each and every one of these um, sort of authors, if you want to call them that, bodies of, li- of these bodies of literature uh, or, um, you know, of these uh, writings uh, with the idea of socialism, you know, in, in mm-hmm. a way, like, I, I mean, I, I really appreciated how, you know, you started with this sort of like, if you want to call it official history of socialism or how it sort of was supposed to, uh, the, you know, what were the policies, what were they trying to achieve, you know, and how they were trying to achieve it. And then in each and every one of the uh, sort of the, the types of texts that you examine, you realize that in some ways they're not necessarily opposing it, or but they're just engaging it in in, in different ways, you know, mm-hmm. and, and 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 in different manners. Uh, the the idea of literacy, uh, like you 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 mention it there, but it's, it basically under um, underpins the entire uh, the entire book. Uh, I mean, it's uh, and literacy was one of those central. Uh, projects uh, of Taino. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, before we move forward to the next chapters, just to uh, remind ourselves of, of that, uh, how important uh, this this project to expand literacy in Tanzania uh, uh, was uh, mm-hmm. for the socialist project? 
Yeah, thank you so much for that question. That is, that is really important, and I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, so that was one of the the, the big kind of <clears throat> aspirations of, of Nureri, and also one of the major accomplishments of, of his, um, you know, of, of the time that he was um, president. Um, so literacy, you know, like, um, you know, as we know, like, you know, colonial regime did not really prioritize literacy as something that everyone should have access to. You know, they prioritized it as something that a certain cadre of people should have access to so they could be kind of, you know, productive for the colonial enterprise. Um, so literacy rates in Tanzania at the time of independence from colonial rule, um, you know, were roughly around, you know, 11 or so percent. Um, you know, of course, these statistics are always, you know, imperfect, but that's the kind of statistic that we generally have. Um, I think that one comes from UNESCO. Um, by the time uh, socialism was over in the 80s, literacy rates of Tanzanians uh, were up in the 60s, around 69 percent. So it's a major accomplishment. And, and just, you know, like the matter of a decade or two, you know, literacy rates had, had you know, gone up, you know, by a, a massive amount, you know, from 11 to around 69%. So, so this is a major part of, of, of the socialist kind of program was extending literacy to people and not just to kind of, you know, young people in schools, but also to the elderly, you know, there was this, you know, project of getting young people um, to go out to the, their communities and to teach literacy um, to their elders and to peasants and to people in the countryside and to workers in the factories. Um, so, that was part of the idea behind socialism was that you would you would get you know people would have literacy. Um, there's also the idea that that would then also kind of enlist them into the kind of socialist project by making these texts available to them that could kind of educate them in the kind of ethos and ideals of African socialism. So you see a massive kind of outpouring of state produced kind of literature about socialism in that time period. Um, you know there are all kinds of primers and, and textbooks you know for people. Um, you know, often having parables about, you know, socialist living, you know, what makes a good kind of socialist life? You know, what is a what is a male head of household in a socialist community? How is he supposed to act towards his wife and children? You know, what kinds of, you know, principles of, of community life should one kind of adhere to? Um, you know, and these are all texts that are written with a kind of simple vocabulary that someone who has only, you know, recently learned how to read can read and understand. Um, so you just, you know, if you go to any library in Tanzania, you just see tons and tons of these texts. Um, and so it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, like literacy was part of this plan to kind of make good socialists, you know, within the kind of model envisioned by Tanu in the state. Um, at the same time, you know, this literacy project enabled other forms of literary output that were not very much in line with that kind of project. Um, you know, people were writing all kinds of things and reading all kinds of things that were not, you know, primers on how to, you know, grow the right crops or how to live a socialist life, you know, but for example, pulp fiction books from abroad, you know, or, or magazines, drum magazine from South Africa, um, you know, other kinds of literacy became really kind of, you know, really flourished in the socialist period, which I think is one of the kind of interesting kind of unintended consequences of the literacy project. Yeah, and, and the amount of, uh, as we will see in, 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 you know, in this other chapters, uh, the, the part as being part of the social, as part of the socialist project, when things were banned uh, from entering, um, that kind of encouraged that internal production that that uh, ends up being so both uh, representing sort of uh, you know new moral communities, uh, new a new ethos, uh, but also starts to recreate uh, sort of like the social fabric of the city. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, in in the third chapter, you move into a, a new body of uh, texts. In this case, are basically songs uh, that uh, look that allow you to look into so the, the dynamics of uh, nightlife in, in Dar es Salaam. Uh, again, it, it, I imagine that some of this came to you through those cassette player, uh, those cassettes that you <laughs> encounter in the streets. Um, how, how did you? I, I'm, I'm fascinated. How, did you track the singers uh, or some of the the musicians? Uh, how did you uh, encounter this this songs, this music, and and how do you put this chapter together? Mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks. So, yeah, as you point out, you know, one of the, the, the first kind of sources that I turned to was these cassette tapes. And I would just kind of listen and transcribe all of them and try to get at, you know, what was happening in them, you know, transcribe the lyrics. Um, and um, I did, as you as you suggested, I, I interviewed a lot of musicians. Um, I started actually. So I went to see a lot of music when I was in Dar es Salaam, um, particularly the year I was there for my dissertation research. Um, and I would, you know, often just a lot of the musicians who were active in the 70s are still active or were, were still, you know, playing music in, you know, 
<coughs> excuse me, in 2008. So, so I would, you know, transcribe all these, these lyrics and then I would, you know, find, I think I interviewed around 80 musicians um, or so. But, um, you know, I would interview them both about their lives, their, their, their process of migrating to the city, the kinds of social networks they found in the city, um, you know, their creative life as a musician. And then I'd interview them about the actual songs that they wrote, you know, like, and one of the things that I was really delighted to find was that a lot of these songs um, were about actual things that had happened, like actual little disputes within neighborhoods, you know, so for example, like, you know, a lot of the songs, you know, that have like, you know, a woman's name in the title are actually like about one of the singer's girlfriends or, you know, or, or their sister or like, these were these really kind of local community debates about, you know, this society they're living in, the community they're living in. And um, so being able to kind of, you know, both understand the bigger kind of context of urban migration that led them to the city and what life was like in the city and their friendship networks, uh, you know, how they made it as a band, you know, but also, the ways in which the songs they were writing were kind of linked to these really intimate debates about, you know, community life in the city and what it meant to live in the city um, was really a lot of fun. So I spoke to, to musicians, I interviewed musicians, I transcribed song, song lyrics. You know, I found a lot of, you know, kind of newspaper articles about, you know, different bands and, and dance clubs and stuff. I also interviewed some bouncers who used to work at these nightclubs. I interviewed taxi drivers who used to kind of shuttle people around to different kind of dance halls. Um, so I tried to really get a kind of, you know, do a kind of historical ethnography of, of nightlife in, in Dar es Salaam in the 70s. And I think what's interesting also, and, and you mentioned this, um, even as you enter, uh, well, as Dar es Salaam entered, um, you know, the more economically stringent uh, periods towards the end of the socialist era, um, th- there's this... Uh, vibrant nightlife, despite the fact that uh, it's expensive, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not cheap. Yeah. Uh, and there's this, uh, like you said, this, the, you know, the trappings of modernity and luxury and uh, consumption uh, that, uh, are, like, again, they're not necessarily just um, telling us something about uh, different mores or, or, or different ways of uh, aspirations and thinking, but they're physically and 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 uh socially changing uh uh the the way people live and and the way people experience the city um there's there's this notion that you use um that that i i would like you to talk a little bit about because i found it very uh very interesting and very um uh, provoking, uh, not not provoking, but just very insightful. Uh, this notion that uh, this text, uh, like you said, they're, they're artifacts that are not only representing something, but they're actually affecting change. You know, they're they're affecting urbanism. This this notion that a new kind of urbanism is is being um, affected uh, by by uh, by these sort of cultural artifacts. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how do you came to uh, that conclusion? In other words. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, maybe the first time I kind of had an inkling of that um, was, you know, I was interviewing a musician um, <clears throat> and he told me about a song that he wrote, um, you know, that was, you know, it was a song that was in many ways kind of, you know, it, it was critical of women. I can't remember the exact, exact lyrics, but some song that basically the premise of it was, you know, all these women are, are you know, coming to the city and they're robbing us blind and they're, you know, they're, 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 they're the downfall fall of, of all the young men in the city or something like that. And, uh, and he told me how, you know, the rest of that week, women and neighbor would come to his house and pelt his house with rocks, you know, so he'd hear the sound of the rocks on his kind of metal roof. And he never sang that song again, because, you know, there was, you know, it wasn't just a song, it was like a kind of conversation with all the people in the neighborhood, you know, like, um, there was a kind of sense that you were having a big kind of moral debate about, you know, the people in your community. Um, so when, I, when he told me that story, I started to kind of ask other musicians about that. And, and, and sure enough, they would tell me about the different kinds of um, you know, stories and about urban life that they were trying to kind of participate in to kind of, you know, bring their own perspective to the story to kind of render a kind of, you know, outcome, um, you know, whether it's, you know, in some ways it kind of took a, a sort of, you know, um, like trying to kind of, you know, control people's behavior or not control, but to kind of chastise people if, if behaved in a way that was, you know, antisocial or, you know, 
sometimes that you know they would try to chastise women for example they saw as as not behaving appropriately um you know or they would you know um you know, there's one song um by the the singer Marijani Rajabu about Masudi which is this kind of was you know was someone who was known as a kind of urban gangster at that time you know and it was a song kind of just you know it was kind of making fun of him but also kind of chastising him for some of his behavior um, the idea being that, you know, if you could publicly shame this person, then he would, you know, kind of be integrated back into the community again and, 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 and not, you know, engage in that kind of behavior. So, so there was that sense of, of kind of really kind of participating in urban life and, and kind of affecting social outcomes with the kinds of songs that people sang. Uh, and that's, that is, is, by the way, part of a longer tradition of Swahili, you know, music and performance poetry, the idea that, you know, by performing in public, you know, you're kind of taking a stance on public issues and trying to kind of affect the social fabric, um, you know, of, of urban life. Um, now, it wasn't always this kind of, you know, sort of um, positive kind of, you know, uh, community building kind of exercise. There also was the side of that that involved um, you know, um, really kind of publicly shaming people, you know, like, and, and as I mentioned, particularly women, you know, for their behavior. So there was a, a sense in which that could also have really negative outcomes for people, you know, there could be a kind of a bullying aspect of it as well. Um, but it really gives you a sense that this city that in many ways is this kind of cosmopolitan hub, you know, they're, they're importing, you know, all this kind of music and fashion from different parts of the world. There's also very much, very much an intimacy to these communities too, as they're kind of you know, creating these spaces of public performance and public critique, you know, in, in these dance hall spaces with the performance of music and songs. Yeah, and um, it, trying to sort of move a little bit into the next chapter, but very much connected to what you're saying, um, the, the, the chapter about Pulp Fiction, I thought, was um, just incredible. I mean, I, I, I can't only imagine coming across with these texts and, 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 and reading them. Um, the, the notion of the briefcase publishers, again, you know, one can only imagine, given the scarcity of paper, the scarcity of all these things, having an entire industry thriving um, uh, just by publishing this history, the stories. But these stories also that, like you said, um, are meant to sort of, change, um, establish new ideas about uh, values and society. And, and I particularly found it very interesting, uh, this whole notion or this whole engagement with um, what it means to be independent and uh, how to defend independence and, and um, you know, in this sort of like post-colonial setting and the relationship that that has to socialism or no socialism and the city, et cetera, et cetera, like the, the entanglement of all those set of values and, and the way in which these values get sort of re, uh, uh, reframed uh, by, by the authors of, of, of this uh, Pulp Fiction. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this one, this, this chapter? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you liked that chapter. I, I had so much fun with these materials. Um, I think in all, I found around 200 of these novellas and, you know, they were just found kind of at, at these used bookstores and, you know, kind of in the basement of the National Library and just kind of all over the place, you know, they weren't all, you know, kind of centralized in one location, um, but they were, they just felt like such treasures to find. Um, and, you know, I wasn't always sure how to read them at first because their fiction, you know, they were made in Dar es Salaam in the seventies by migrants, um, you know, but how do you read fiction as an historical source? You know, this, so it was really a lot of fun to kind of figure out, you know, what I could learn from these. Um, and one of the things, you know, so these, you know, basically the, the, the briefcase publishers, and that was kind of a sort of derogatory term, you know, used to describe them, that they themselves that embraced, but, you know, by kind of literary leaps, you know, they weren't publishing with the kind of formal publishing houses of, you know, the, the you know, Tanzania Publishing House or the university presses. And these were kind of self-published um, underground, you know, texts that they made. And so if you look at them, many of them, you know, have tons of typos, they'll be missing pages, you know, they're, they're just kind of self-made by, the, by these young men in the city without the kind of, you know, professional imprimatur of, of kind of a, of a, you know, a kind of more um, institutionalized press. Um, but so these, you know, and as you point out, this industry really flourished at the time when Dar es Salaam was in the most dire of economic straits, you know, these are times when you know, when you interview people, they talk about not being able to find rice and sugar and tea. Um, you know, these are the times of real scarcity when the economy was really collapsing. But these are the years when you have the most of these books published, you know, they're just available everywhere. So it's kind of an interesting contradiction, how you can have such 
cultural bounty in a time of such economic scarcity. And so the, the, the so these novel, novellas are, are published almost almost all of them are published by young men, um, and that's something that I, I talk about a bit why that is. Um, but if, if they're published by young men, and these men are all you know, uh, they're they're they've been educated in the kind of socialist system. Most of them come from rural areas and are migrants in the city. They have education, they have literacy, um, and this is a generation that has been raised on the promises of African socialism and of prosperity and of having a kind of, you know, respectable middle class living, but have largely been disappointed by those promises because they moved to the city at a time when, you know, it, it's an economic collapse. They're not able to kind of realize their aspirations to get married, to have a household, to find salaried employment. Um, so in many ways, these novellas are, are the novellas of, of, of young men who are very frustrated with their position in life. They still kind of, you know, believe in the project of African socialism. They still hold out, you know, a kind of real kind of loyalty to the project of decolonization. Um, but they're trying to rethink what that means um, in light of their own kind of circumstances. And they do that through these really kind of, um, kind of just really lively and like uh, kind of, you know, these kind of pulp fiction novellas that draw on all these different genres. They draw on kind of crime thriller books. They draw on, you know, James Bond movies. They draw on kung fu films. You know, Bruce Lee kind of makes an appearance in some of them. They, they draw on spaghetti westerns. And they use these different genres to kind of try to humanize and narrate the, st- the kind of, you know, the predicament of young urban men in the city trying to make a living, trying to kind of find new modes of respectability in adulthood. Um, knowing that they can no longer kind of rely on the modes of adulthood and, and, and you know, security that their parents could in the rural areas. But yet the, pro- the promises of African socialism also aren't really viable to them anymore. So how do they kind of make a new kind of urban masculinity, um, you know, in the context of, of a city that's, you know, in such dire straits, you know, and so they kind of craft this new ki- these new kinds of modes of, of masculinity and urban belonging, you know, in the form of these Pulp Fiction novels. Yeah, no, it was, um, it, it, and, and like I said, I think one of the interesting bits is, like you said, there's always this very interesting, it's not even that they're criticizing um, socialism openly, but uh, they're like recreating it and trying to uh, find it, find a space for themselves or find, find a place of writing themselves in that story uh, without necessarily rejecting the project. Uh, which which I think is is just a fascinating um, uh, sort of like enterprise. Um, so then you you close uh, your last chapter uh, uh, talks about uh, uh, an urban lexicon, and, and so you focus on on two terms, you know, ujama and, and bongo, and and you rightly say, you know, these are two sort of like sort of like the beginning at kind of like the beginning and the end, uh, precisely for that reason. You know, we start with this notion of um, you know, socialism sort of uh, represented in the term ujama, and then um, we end up with a completely, not, not a completely, but a, a different uh, interpretation of, of that self-reliance that that it's that, that was sort of at the core of the socialist project. Um, tell us about this chapter and, and what is the transition from, from one, this one term to the next? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, um, so, you know, in, in Tanzania today, you have this kind of um, this concept of bongo. Um, so, you know, one of the, the most kind of popular genres of music is, is bongo flavor, which is a kind of a hip hop genre. And bongo literally means brains uh, in, in, in Swahili. And um, and so this this becomes a real kind of like, you know, urban ethos in Tanzania, um, you know, in the 80s. Um, you know, Dar es Salaam is often colloquially called bongo land. Um, you know, somebody who is who's using their brain, who kind of has street savvy or a kind of urban, you know, uh, kind of street smarts, you know, is known as someone who has bongo brains. So I was kind of interested in that, you know, like the kind of rise of that kind of term at the end of socialism. And so I was kind of looking into the different kinds of, you know, popular literature in Dar es Salaam, trying to kind of track it. And so I, I see it kind of becoming a term that people use, like in the last years of socialism, you know, in, in the early 1980s. And uh, one of the things I kind of am interested to look at is how Bongo starts out as this kind of subversive kind of rallying call for urban youth, you know, who are, you know, kind of struggling in a society that's not really doing much to support them, you know, like uh, with the kind of restrictions on, you know, black market trade, you know, young, 
men are being arrested, for example, for selling loose cigarettes, you know, like uh, people are, you know, young women are being arrested for wearing miniskirts, you know, there's this idea that like the, the state is really kind of attacking them rather than the real culprits, which are, you know, those who are, you know, um, who are becoming wealthy, you know, off of the citizens, you know, like corrupt politicians and, and other kinds of, you know, businessmen. Um, there's this kind of sense of outrage that that young people are being blamed for the ills of society. Um, and so the idea about Bongo is kind of trying to sort of, you know, valorize those kinds of, you know, youth qualities of, of urban life, of, of being street smart, of being able to, you know, mobilize your knowledge about the city to to engage in black market trade, you know, to, to find secondhand clothes so you can look really sharp when you go out at night, to find access to things that, you know, you can only find if you, if you know the networks of the city and, and, and have a kind of, you know, uh, connection to it. Um, so it starts out having this kind of real sort of subversive you know, kind of connotation, you know, kind of against the sort of um, repressions of, of that time period, both economically and politically. But then one of the things I think that happens is, you know, with the kind of opening of the economy in, in 1985, the end of African socialism, you know, the the, the, the second president of Tanzania, um, um, you know, he, uh, Ali Hassan Mwini has this nickname, which is, you know, Mze Ruksa, which is, you know, kind of means permissive, Mr. Permissiveness, you know, in that, you know, he opened up the economy to all this kind of, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, to, to the outside world, basically. And you have, you know, this influx of imported goods, you know, that, that were restricted during the, during the I'm sorry, the, the socialist period, um, you know, but you also have, you know, like with the expansion of these kinds of opportunities, you also have really massively rising levels of um, inequality. And, um, you know, and so, you know, for many people, life doesn't get better, it gets worse with that time with that kind of shift, you know, people are, you know, poverty is still a major problem. Um, and so Bongo, you know, while in the earlier time had been this kind of subversive claim of street smart against a kind of society that discouraged that, now suddenly with this kind of neoliberal ethos of self-reliance of, you know, being able to make one's way in the world, you know, through the open market, now Bongo kind of becomes in many ways embraced by the state as a kind of entrepreneurial claim that everyone should be responsible for themselves. You know, you should no longer rely on the state. Um, and so in many ways, the kind of critical edge that Bongo had in earlier years as a kind of, you know, rallying call for urban youth, you know, now it becomes a kind of, um, you know, something that you're kind of uh, forced upon. You. you You have to use your kind of street smarts to survive because no one is going to help you. There's no kind of expectation you know, that society is obligated to you. Um, so that's my kind of take on how that term really shifts in meaning, you know, from the early 80s and the last days of socialism to the kind of neoliberal era, you know, that comes on its heels. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of the book, you, you finish with your conclusion with this, uh, what I found lovely story of you exploring the basement of uh, the National Library um, and you use this term that you found, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, that exploration to be sort of like a map. And, uh, and I was wondering whether, as I read that, I was wondering um, a map in the sense of, uh, it just gave you like a, speci a spatial sense of like the richness of this text, like this textual history, uh, or a map in terms of like it, it allow you a sense of like orienting yourself into that uh, uh, because in a way it, it is it, it is kind of a, I mean I can just imagine like spatially think, thinking about like all of a sudden finding yourself in the midst of all this uh, history that like you said had been at the, at least at the archives it had been sort of difficult to uncover or like penetrate. Uh, and 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 this new experience, it, it was all there. Or it was a lot of it was there, uh, uh, but in a kind of chaos and like disjointedness. And 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 I said, in a way, just seeing it in that way physically might have been both scary and and, and reassuring. I, I was wondering, uh, what was your experience of that moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it's you know, so in many ways, I, I think that you know, what I was trying to do with this book was a kind of literary history of Dar es Salaam. Um, and there are so many other kinds of histories to write of Dar es Salaam. I mean, you know, not everybody was involved in that kind of print culture. So it is a very particular, you know, it's one version of that story. It's one particular kind of archive. Um, and, um, you know, in the, so the National Library, um, you know, it's this, this, this big kind of, you know, um, modernist building in, in downtown Dar es Salaam. And, 
Um, and going into the basement is just, you know, was such a, you know, it was a really cool experience. And so many of the, the, the text, I mean, it's just stacked full of books and pamphlets, you know, a lot of them aren't really cataloged and, you know, a lot of them are just kind of covered in dust and, you know, um, aren't really of much interest to many people who go in there these days. You know, a lot of people go in there to use the computers or to use the, or to read the newspapers and stuff. Um, and I just think it's, it's, you know, like walking through the different kind of um, aisles of the library and seeing all these different kind of publications and translations, you know, it just gives you a sense of the rich kinds of cultural worlds and imaginative work that people were doing in the 70s and 80s. Um, the kinds of hopes that people had, the kinds of, you know, creative visions they had for, for the society they lived in, you know, that largely are lost. I mean, you know, because, you know, um, you know, these are histories that, you um, you know, in many ways came to a close with the end of the socialist period um, and, um, you know, didn't really have much of a life after that. So there's something I think really just um, just moving about seeing all the different kinds of imaginative worlds that people kind of, um, you know, put together, you know, using this kind of this, this um, using print culture, using literacy, um, using the written word. I was wondering if, if for, uh, just to close, I have I had one last question. Uh, you do a, this really, really good um, job at contrasting the experiences that uh, these migrants uh, were uh, going through uh, in Dar es Salaam with those of other um, cities um, in the global south. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could give us, uh, a, you know, an impression or just a sense of how do you think in other words, you know, there's a lot of experiencing things that we're being experienced in other cities. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of things that are very unique um, to to the process that Dar es Salaam uh, went through. Um, what do you think uh, of this textual history sort of has marked Dar es Salaam, um, uh, you know, that's made it uh, is unique to the city or is particularly characteristic to the city? One of the things that I, I think is is unique about Dar es Salaam, and this is something that I think, you know, when you interview people about that time period, you know, this really comes across as well, is the kind of sense that, um, you know, even in the light of, you know, economic restrictions, even as, you know, there wasn't enough petrol for the buses to be running, you know, even as you have, um, you know, electricity not running for half the day, you know, like, um, you know, you have just this incredible kind of cultural productivity during those years, um, you know, and part of it I think has to do with the kind of protectionist policies, you know, the flip side of this kind of, um, you know, banning of imported, you know, television and music and, and literature is that, you know, there was this real kind of, you know, homegrown industries like in music and in, in, um, in, in, in literature, you know, and, and other things. And so there was this sense that you could be involved in this kind of cultural life in the city, that there were all these novellas being published in Swahili. They weren't competing with imports from Europe or from other countries. You know, there was this real sense of a kind of um, commitment to locally produced art. Um, so I think that was one of the really unique things about, you know, living in the city at this time. Um, you know, people who, who were really struggling, you know, other parts of life could still go out to a dance hall and see music pretty regularly. So I think that kind of cultural bounty of the time, you know, people really speak about that with a lot of nostalgia as one of the really beautiful things about being in the city at that time period. Yeah, no, it definitely, it's, um, one imagines it and it's, it, it sounds like something to miss. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Dr. Kalachi, I think I've taken plenty of time from you. Um, could you just tell us uh, what are your current projects? Sure. Um, well, I'm currently working on, on two projects. Um, both are a bit different than the, the one that I, my first book. Um, <clears throat> the first is a kind of a history of, of reproductive politics in post-colonial Africa uh, in the 60s and 70s, starting from my work in Tanzania, but also, you know, working with archives in, in Kenya and Nigeria. Um, but basically, it's kind of looking at the spread of um, you know, the family planning movement uh, across Africa in the 60s and 70s and focusing really on the role of African health workers as kind of public intellectuals, um, you know, the, as I kind of see it now, and I'm, I'm early in the state in the process, but is, you know, these health workers kind of had this, this kind of conundrum they were facing, uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, um, you know, access to, to contraception and family planning was a really kind of dire need. People really wanted this. Uh, and, you know, in the wake of colonial rule, health infrastructures were really underdeveloped and really were in need of, of resources. 
And yet, you know, at the same time, you know, in the kind of international community, there was this ethos of demographic control and population control um, that really kind of smacked of colonial eugenics, you know, and and, and had kind of traces of, of, of racism in it. Um, so I think there was a real kind of sense as African health workers, how do you deliver health to your community in a world where your access to those resources has this kind of legacy of racism and eugenics? How do you kind of work through that predicament and build a public health system? So that's the kind of one of the projects that I'm working on. The second one is kind of a different, kind of a U-turn for me. Um, it's a kind of global history of this movement in the 70s called the Wages for Housework Movement, which is a global feminist movement. Um, basically, you know, the central kind of argument of, of this movement was that, um, you know, we need to recognize and pay for uh, the unpaid work that women do uh, in the economy. Um, that, uh, that, you know, basically the wages for housework was the idea that women's unpaid work is really what makes the world go round and should be the center of politics. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm running out of my voice. It's kind of failing on me. But, um, <laughs> those are the two projects I'm doing now. Well, they both sound um, wonderful, and we look forward to hopefully discussing them with you at some point in the future. So thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, we really, I enjoyed it and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.